This sermon was recorded at Church of the Ascension, an Anglican parish in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, whose mission is to be a worshipping community that equips God's people and shares Christ's healing with a broken world. For more information, please visit ascensionpittsburgh.org. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would speak to us afresh this morning by the power of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. I wonder, have you ever dreamed of winning the lottery? Of course, winning the lottery does require purchasing lottery tickets, um, which is not something I do or particularly recommend. But not buying lottery tickets doesn't stop me occasionally wondering what it would be like suddenly to be the recipient of a huge sum of money. I like to think I wouldn't be like everybody else, I would be different, um, but I suspect I'd be like every other blubbering, uh, blabbling, um, if that's a word. You know, I don't believe it, I don't believe it, this mixture of great excitement um, and disbelief. The way people who win the lottery react reminds me of the disciples, or the way people react to puppies, as we heard earlier. They were stunned. They could hardly believe it. And yet it was true. And they were filled with joy. And that's pretty much how St. Luke described the disciples' reaction to Jesus when he appears to them after his resurrection. Verse 41, in their joy, they were disbelieving and still wondering. I love how Jesus then responds. You got any, got any, anybody got any food? That, that helped them. But there's a very big difference between the joy of the resurrection and the joy of a new puppy or winning the lottery. Indeed, there are numerous examples of how winning the lottery, far from bringing joy, has brought heartache and destruction. Some lottery winners end up bankrupt within a few years. Others end up addicted, divorced, or even dead. So much for the so-called joy of winning tons of money. Instead of enjoying eternal happiness, winners in many cases experience disaster and ruin. The trouble with happiness is that, well, it just happens. And it doesn't usually last, whereas joy does. The joy that the disciples and Christians throughout the ages have experienced is a joy that lasts into eternity. True joy is an altogether different phenomenon than the fleeting delights of material wealth. Now, that said, the joy that the disciples experienced did not lead them to the life of luxury, happiness, and ease. Far from it. It cost many of them their very lives. So what is Christian joy? And can we truly experience a joy that lasts? I think joy is, in many ways, kind of a religious word. I'm not sure how much we typically use it outside the context of church or faith. So what is it? Well, I, I think it can certainly include happiness, but it's so much more than that. 
It's not fleeting. It's not based on material pleasure. It's certainly not based on money. No, joy is something much, much deeper, much, much more substantive. You know, if at Christmas time we sang, happy to the Lord, the world, the Lord is come. I mean, that would fall a bit flat, wouldn't it? Or, you know, happy, happy, we adore thee. I don't think so. No, joy expresses something of our whole being and our whole substance, and it's based on something very real and concrete. And our Easter joy is something that comes from outside the material world and brings the promise of satisfaction of our very deepest longings. Joy is a deeply religious word for a deeply religious fact. And I want to suggest this morning that the foundation and promise for real hope and for deep abiding joy is found in no place else than the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. If Jesus conquered death, then we can truly know eternal life and joy. If he did not, then we have no lasting hope, no real joy, and as I said last week, we are frankly to be pitied. When Jesus appeared to his disciples gathered together in Jerusalem, they began to experience this real and lasting joy. Three times... In the face of the cross, on the night before he was betrayed, Jesus had told the disciples that their grief would be turned to joy. And Jesus promised that no one would take away that joy. If you have ever experienced grief, you will know that it can be a desolate, empty, numbing, life-draining experience. Indeed, in the midst of grief, it's hard even to imagine ever knowing happiness again. And that's why it's so important for those of us who belong to this worshiping community that we support one another and come alongside one another in times of heartache and grief to show one another Christ's love and healing grace. Despair, Grief, an absence of joy, would surely be ways that described how the disciples must have felt after the crucifixion. And yet what a contrast when that which Jesus had promised, namely that he would rise again and that their grief would be turned to joy, was fulfilled right in front of them. Easter is rightly a very joyful time as we reflect on the glories of the resurrection. And we celebrate that in our worship together. These past few Sundays have certainly been very happy and joyous occasions here at Ascension. What joy on Easter Day to add a fourth service to accommodate everyone who wanted to be here. What joy, finally, even right now, to be together. I can see some people who I haven't seen for a year. Welcome. I'm so pleased to see you. Finally, emerging from this long winter of the pandemic. While those first disciples were experiencing that first Easter joy, alongside their wondering and disbelief, Jesus explains to them from the scriptures how he was the fulfillment of all that had been written and promised about him. He opened their minds 
to understand the scriptures. And he taught them that repentance and forgiveness of sins is to be proclaimed to everyone. I love talking to people who've begun to have their eyes opened by the Lord in new ways. Their awakening to Christ comes in all kinds of ways. For some, it's simply through coming to church Sunday by Sunday or through reading the scriptures. For others, it's being part of our internationals ministry or being in one of our many community groups. I wonder, what would Jesus, the risen Jesus, say to us today? What stands out for me is that at the heart of this encounter of the disciples with Jesus after his resurrection is the call to mission that Jesus so clearly makes. We are called to participate in God's mission. And this mission is about sharing Christ's love, sharing his joy, and sharing his peace with the world. One of the wonderful things that Easter reminds us of is that Jesus is making all things new. And so for us each day, in the midst of our anxieties or sufferings, even as we live in a world that is tragically and continually marked by shootings and racism and injustice and all manner of dissension, discord and division, we do not despair. We are an Easter people and we cling to the Easter joy that we have in Jesus, for he is making all things new. And we're called to walk by faith and not by sight. And it is in doing so that we experience our sorrows being turned to joy. And yet, this is easier said than done. The danger is that notwithstanding all I've said this morning, it's still possible for our joy to be, well, superficial. The power that brings us God's joy is the power of God that rocked the world on the first Easter Sunday. It's the power of the Holy Spirit that Jesus told his disciples to wait for. And that kind of power is scary. It's interesting that each of the four Gospels mentions the fear that the disciples experienced on that first Easter morning. ACNA priest and colleague Esau McCauley, writing in the New York Times on Easter weekend, wrote this, Easter is a frightening prospect. For the women, the only thing more terrifying than a world with Jesus dead was one in which he was alive. We know what to do with grief and despair. We have a place for it. We have rituals that surround it. Esau, an African-American, continues, I know how to look around at the anti-black racism, the anti-Asian racism, the struggles of families at the border and feel despair. I know what it's like to watch the body count rise after a mass shooting. And he goes on to explain that hope is hard to come by. He says, the women did not go to the tomb looking for hope. They were searching for a place to grieve. They wanted to be left alone in despair. The terrifying prospect of Easter is that God called these women to return to the same world that crucified Jesus 
with a very dangerous gift, hope in the power of God, the unending reservoir of forgiveness and an abundance of love. It would make them seem like fools. Who could believe such a thing? Esau continues, as we leave the tombs of quarantine, a return to normal would be a disaster unless we recognize that we are going back to a world desperately in need of healing. For me, the source of that healing is an empty tomb in Jerusalem. The work that Jesus left his followers to do includes showing compassion and forgiveness and contending for a just society. It involves the ever-present offer for all to begin again. I find those words to be profound and prophetic. I'm reminded of uh, St. Paul's charge to us in Romans 12, be joyful in hope, patient in affliction, faithful in prayer. These are the marks of a joyful Christian. And as Christ follows, we are on mission. So what does this mean? The prophet Micah declares what the Lord requires of us to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. So today, let each of us begin again. Let us come to God with our failings, our weaknesses, our ignorance, our willfulness, and let us ask God to change us and forgive us for our selfishness, for our apathy, for every way in which we have not put God first in our lives and have not contended for justice, have not loved kindness, have not walked humbly with our God. And then, as we repent and turn to God, we will know forgiveness and refreshment. We will know his joy a joy that will last, a joy that will be infectious to others, and a love and a joy and a peace that only God can give. If we will do this, I think, I believe, we will once again be amazed by who God is and all that he has done and all that he will do in the days ahead. In the very first days of the church, the crowds were amazed when they saw the disciples preaching and when they saw a man being healed. And we read a bit about that story, a part of that story in Acts this morning. But here's the thing. They weren't always amazed in a good way. Peter and John found themselves hauled before the authorities for healing someone or for having the Lord Jesus Christ heal someone. They are asked by what authority they've done this and they don't mix their words in their reply. It's extraordinary. They are so bold and so brave. They say, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that this man, this man who's been healed, is standing before you in good health by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead.
There is salvation by no one else, for there is no other name by which we must be saved. That's the scandal of the gospel, because it is very, very good news, and it's very challenging and disturbing news. It is completely inclusive in the invitation, and it is completely exclusive to those who think there is salvation by any other way. Well, I wonder in what ways will people be amazed by God as they look at us, as they look at ascension in the coming months. And I hope that whatever else may amaze them, they will be amazed by the love, the joy, the peace that they see in us who believe and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and who will walk in his ways. I hope that they may be amazed by our passion for justice and healing and for our zeal for God's kingdom and his righteousness. Brothers and sisters in Christ, I say to you, as St. Peter said, repent therefore and return to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. May it be so for the glory of God and the building up of his church. Amen.